I've caught two foul balls in a lifetime of going to baseball games. And though that was 20 and 25 years ago, respectively, I remember the details vividly to this day, especially the glowing admiration of my son who watched me grab both of them without flubbing it and then handing the balls to him. I don't know what it is, but even those who do not catch the foul ball but pick up someone else's muff, lift up the ball and triumph as if they've just won the World Cup. So I understood what the father was trying to do at a Rangers baseball game this summer when he reached over the railing to try to get a ball tossed to him by an outfielder who happened to be his six-year-old son's favorite player. He had to reach out too far. And to the horror of everyone, he fell 20 feet to his death. It seems so meaningless. But the author of Ecclesiastes, he calls himself Koheleth, preacher or teacher. He sets down his thoughts about life, and on the surface... His basic attitude seems to be that it is all meaningless. As he reflects on life from youth to wise sage, he highlights the absurdity of life. He charts the plunge from the pinnacle of power to the valley of deep spiritual Darkness. Ecclesiastes seems to be a sour, dour, pessimistic book. All is not right with the world. And that's why it's not always been well received or preached. I remember my first encounter with Ecclesiastes, aside from sword drill and training union, when you had to look it up. Y'all don't remember that. But I remember my first real encounter was when the 60s rock group, The Birds, took a Pete Seeger composition and turned it into a hit. Turn, turn, turn for everything there is a season. I couldn't believe that was in the Bible. But then I learned that Shakespeare must have liked Ecclesiastes. He alludes to it a lot. For example, in Macbeth, Act 5, Scene 5, when Macbeth has just received the news of his wife's death, he contemplates the brevity and the meaningless of life, and it sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Nothing new under the sun. That idea is found in Ecclesiastes. All is striving after after the wind. All is vanity. Fifty-seven times the Hebrew word that is rendered variously vanity or absurd or unknowable appears in this book. 
And that message seems to resonate with people today. Stephen Dunn's poem, On the Way to Work, captures how a lot of people must feel about life. In the poem, he's on the way to work, and he spies a bumper sticker on a car of a woman driver who broadcasts her philosophy of life. Life is, and the president is here, so I can't use the word, begins with a B and rhymes with itch. Life is a blank. And then you die. She's broadcast that for everyone to see. And maybe that's true for an Amy Winehouse, the British pop singer who died this summer from an overdose. But too many feel that life is absurd, it's short, it's a vapor, it's like a bubble that pops. And Michael Foley writes in his book, The Age of Absurdity, Why Modern Life Makes It Hard to Be Happy. And I quote, Modern life has made things worse because it's deepened our cravings and at the same time heightened our delusions of importance as individuals. Not only are we rabid in our unsustainable demands for gourmet living, eternal youth, fame, and a hundred varieties of sex, but we have encouraged, been encouraged by a post-1970s rights culture that has a zero tolerance for any perceived inequality, a zero tolerance for any perceived slight, any grievance. And so we now believe that to want something is to deserve it. I want it. I deserve it. And when we get it, we only want more. And we don't get more. We pine and whine away our life. And I would submit that this is the problem with living life under the sun. Koheleth is right. It is all vanity of vanities. It's absolutely meaningless. The preacher sounds like a king who's going through midlife crisis. He's had it all, but now he wearies of life and he wonders, what did it all mean? What did it all matter? And with all his blessings, he reflects on life lived under the sun. And there's nothing new. He accurately describes the plight of those who've been caught in a do-it-yourself religion. I'm going to find myself. I'm going to get my act together. And so in chapter 1, he says, I'm going to apply my mind to seek and to search out wisdom, all that is done under heaven. He went to school, so to speak. He acquired all the wisdom that was buried in books or nowadays in Wikipedia. But it didn't bring him what he wanted. He says in chapter 12 of the making of books there is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. In education you can kill yourself by degrees. 
And one thing I've learned, whenever we double the diameter of our knowledge, we triple the circumference of our ignorance. The preacher did not find his find peace in his great learning. He says, I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all who are in Jerusalem before me, and my mind has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And then he says, for in much wisdom there's much vexation. And those who increase knowledge increase sorrow. Albert Einstein. And for some reason, seeing Joel Weaver down there reminds me of Joe Theismann, commentator on TV, who called him Norman Einstein, which I just think is funny. I did anyway. <laughs> Joe Theismann obviously did not pursue wisdom in his college career. <laughs> but Albert Einstein, with all his Knowledge and learning says we are significant creatures on a minor planet of a very average star near the outer suburbs of a hundred thousand million galaxies. It is difficult to believe in a God who would care about us or even notice our existence. Knowledge brought him nothing. So in chapter 2, he says, I'll try pleasure. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, come now, I will make a test of pleasure. He did what all the ads on TV tell you to do. Go for the gusto. Enjoy yourself. Eat, drink, be merry, and party hearty. And Neil Postman said years ago, we live in a society devoted to amusing ourselves to death. And the preacher had all these possessions. He talks about his great works, his houses, his vineyards, his gardens and parks, his slaves at his beck and call, a harem of women concubines, silver and gold to get all his eyes desired and the leisure to enjoy it. But all it does is feed a relentless churning of desire. It is a universal, spiritual, physical law that all the things we have now are devalued by the things we want next. A star athlete whose Korean was, career was ruined by an addiction to cocaine, his mother said, all his dreams came true, but it wasn't enough. The sister of billionaire Donald Trump says, the more he gets, the more he wants. And in chapter 2, verse 17, Kohelis says, the result of all this pleasure-seeking is I hated life. I hated life. So seeking pleasure did not work. So in chapter 2, verse 24, he tried work. He says, there's nothing better for mortals than to find enjoyment in their toil. And that's true. But many people drown themselves in their work. 
I had a revered teacher in seminary, Wayne Oates. He became my colleague at the faculty at Southern Seminary. And when everything blew up, and 96 to 97 percent of the faculty left in two years, he became a very dear friend. He invented the term workaholic in one of the 50 books that he published. You can look it up on Wikipedia. It's there. He invented the term. And it arose from a reexamination of his own life of devotion to work. And it was prompted when his young son called his secretary to make an appointment to see him. He had become an ergo maniac. And people who give their lives to work, devote themselves to it, it's been shown to lead to an early day, death and make it miserable while it lasts. So, the preacher says, reputation. A good name, in chapter 7, he says, a good name is better than precious ointment. I'll work on my reputation, on my legacy. I'll make a name for myself. I'll become an American idol. Lloyd George said of Winston Churchill that he would make a drum of his own mother's skin in order to sound his own praises. If you can't do it legitimately nowadays, then you can hire online reputation manager. I'm sure there are others. But this is a company that uses search engine op optimization strategies that to repair the image of clients who have been besieged by unfavorable press. They'll flood the internet with positive messages to drown out the negative messages. I learned about this reading about Anil Patti, a cancer researcher at Duke University. He claimed to develop a treatment for cancer through genetics. He was forced to resign last year when it was revealed that he faked the results. Some people seemed, may have died. They started to check his resume and learned that he faked some of his credentials. And after he was forced to resign in disgrace, someone, using his name, created more than a half dozen websites about him, praising his work, lauding his research, and highlighting his devotion to family and church. Trying to save his reputation, but reputation is not reality. Reputation forgets the judgment of God, who is no respecter of persons, will not be impressed by earthly reputations. And so in chapter 11, Kohelet says, Re Rejoice, young men, while you are young, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Follow the inclination of your heart, the desire of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. He tried everything under the sun. And he realized you can't live your life just under the sun. You can live your life under the sun or you can live your life under God. He realized that your problems are not the problem. It's usually your solutions. 
And the lesson from God comes at the very end. You go through this. And then in chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, he says the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of everyone. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. There it is. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Someone asked Jesus, well, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? He said, well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. That's the first, the greatest. There's another one like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Study is important. We're going to make you study. Fun is important. You need to have fun. This, you're going to look back. This is going to be great days when you get my age. You're going to make friends that will last you for the rest of your life. Reputation is important. Work's important. But living in obedience to God, conformed to the life and death of Jesus Christ. That's the secret. Let me get back to baseball. On April 18th and April 19th, 1981, there was a 33-inning game between two minor league AAA teams the Rochester Red Wings, the minor league team for the Baltimore Orioles, and the Paul Tuckett Red Sox, the minor league team for the Boston Red Sox. That game went on until 4 a.m. on Easter Sunday morning. Two future Hall of Famers played in that game, Cal Ripken Jr. for the Rochester Red Wings and Wade Boggs for the Paul Tuckett Red Sox. Don, Dan Barry, in his book, Extra Innings, asked players, why did you keep on playing? Asked fans, why did you stay till 4 a.m. in the morning on Easter Sunday? The player said, because we were bound by duty. Because we aspire to greater things. The fan says, said that because we are loyal. And if you would do that for a meaningless minor league baseball game played under the, art of, under the sun of artificial lights, what should you do if you're going to live your life under God? We are bound by greater duty. We aspire to greater things. Because we are to be loyal to a greater purpose. May you live your life under God as well as under the sun.